1: Hello, and welcome to Prospect Magazine's podcast. The podcast that never stops asking, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and this week, as last, there's only one big story. Yep, it's the Tories, and they're also the focus of our new magazine. British politics may be extremely volatile, but you can always be sure of one thing, that a Tory bust up over Europe is just around the corner. And this time, they went right to the brink looked over and stepped back. Theresa May persuaded enough of her backbench rebels to back off so that she can now just about still claim that she'll have the final say on Brexit. But is it a hollow victory? When you get away from the rough and tumble of Westminster, you see that a traditionally dominant centre-right is suddenly struggling everywhere. With even mighty Angela Merkel wobbling, as Trump taunts the centre ground from the extremes. Why is this all happening now? And what can the leaders of the old establishment do to stop the rot across the continent? On the podcast this week, Andrew Gamble takes on that question. And later on, I'll discuss my own piece about whether or not this is one more row that the Tories will soon shake off as they've done so often in their remarkably successful 300-year history, or whether Brexit is different and it might just be the row that sinks them.
2: Brexit for the British Conservatives is an amazing own goal because they, it's fractured their coalition and many of, the, uh, many of the people that used to support the Conservatives instinctively have been
1: alienated from the party. And it's not just a Conservative Party that's fading from view. Hepzibah Anderson joins us to discuss another great British institution that's on its knees. But first, back to politics. Let's go over to meet this week's guest with my colleague, Jay Elwes.
3: Thank you very much, Tom. Um, I'm here with Hepzibah Anderson and Andrew Gamble, um, both of whom who've written brilliant pieces for the latest issue of the magazine. Hello. Thanks very much for coming in to this afternoon's podcast. Um, I wanted to start with a few questions to Andrew. Um, who's written a piece in this issue about the centre-right and the travails of UK and also European-wide centre-right politics. And Andrew, the, there's, the, the Tories have got this kind of ticking clock of Brexit. It's just one example of the centre-right's troubles. Um, are these problems in the UK's centre-right symptomatic of something deeper, do you think?
2: Yes, there seems to be a general crisis uh, for the centre-right across Europe. If you look at Germany or or Italy, or France, many other countries where the centre-right has been dominant really for most of the post-war period, you see that uh, centre-right coalitions are in some disarray.
3: And Why is that? Why are they in that kind of disarray?
2: A a lot has to do with the 2008 financial crash and the aftermath of a slow economic recovery. Um, And of course, the the big problem of immigration. So you've got the, the combination um, of uh, stagnant economy, um, real wages which haven't really increased, high unemployment, particularly high youth unemployment, and then this problem that uh, both national governments and the EU have seemingly been unable to deal with the immigration problem. And the combination of those two factors has allowed nas- uh, populist nationalist parties and movements to get going and to win lots of support from both centre-right and centre-left.
3: And the way that you put it in your piece, is you, you do it very nicely in suggesting that there was this post-war, post-Second World War a kind of consensus whereby centrist parties and centrist, centre-right parties predominantly would offer a better life, a house with a mortgage, decent employment and stuff, and that a kind of really essential social compact between us, the the voters, and the centre-right has somehow kind of snapped. That That's what you're saying, isn't it?
2: Yes, I mean, for a very long time, the the centre-right was able to deliver external security through the Atlantic Alliance and uh, domestic security and and prosperity and increasing um, property ownership of various types in different countries. And that meant that there was a solid block of support which was assembled. Which voted in centre-right governments more often than not, and although there were uh, centre-left had its uh, had its successes, um, the centre-right. If you look at the whole period uh, since the 1940s, you see the the centre-right parties have been the leading force in uh, most, not all, but most European countries.
3: Mm. But then, is it? really all that bad i mean you look across the channel and emmanuel macron seems to be doing pretty well he's a centrist politician he has manned his own electoral ship and and won this amazing victory surely there's there's rays of hope there for people of a kind of centrist political inclination
2: there's certainly hope um, and macron shows that the uh, The nationalist populist tide can be stemmed but on the other hand the Front National did come second in that uh, in that presidential election and they got more votes than they've ever done before so the uh, and so the problem is Macron can't afford to stumble because if he uh, if if, if Macron fails to deliver then of course that would open the way to the Front National in the future so that the uh, whereas in in the for most of the post-war period, uh, there was an alternation between centre-right and centre-left, um, where there was a basic agreement on the, on the constitutional rules, on uh, external security arrangements and on on a lot of domestic policy. There were conflicts, of course, but there was a broad consensus about the kind of society which centre left and centre right were both committed to. The th- thing about the populist nationalists is that they want to tear up large parts of that uh, post-war consensus. And so if the if the populist nationalists break through then we can expect to see some fairly major changes in European society. So there's a lot at stake if the centre-right were to seriously fragment now.
3: Do you think we're on the verge of a, a, a sinister political conversion to a kind of politics that is much uglier, much more um, identity-based? I mean, we've all followed the, the remarkable progress of Italian politics and today, the announcement by a senior, I think, a Liga Norda politician, saying that, in his view, um, there should be an inquiry into the numbers of Roma people in Italy, is, is this sort of a, a, a new chilly wind? Do you think that we are, are having to deal with?
2: Yes, I think there are some very disturbing elements in the, in in amongst the populist nationalists, which uh, um, hark back to earlier and much less happy periods of European history. So I think there has to be a lot of vigilance about what is going on because the uh, we know from the past that uh, movements preaching intolerance and hate can do enormous damage.
3: Turning to you, Hepsiber Anderson, um, you you've lived in the States, you know that country somewhat, and we now see... President of the United States who is tending towards precisely the kind of identitarian kind of kind of quite nasty politics that andrew's just been talking about what do you what do you make of that
0: oh my god well i 'm really glad to be back here for a start. very glad to only have to hear that the current presidents always maybe two or three times a week rather than on the hour with each news bulletin um, but you, you, yeah, I mean I suppose images of the likes of Detroit were were help, very help, intensely helpful to him and his his insane um, election that I think was still staggering to to believe really happened, um, which ties into the the empty storefronts that I've been writing about, and I and I think also you know it hints at the fact that you know we talk about fake news, but actually sometimes there's a, a disjunction between reality on paper and the reality that people see strolling down the street and, and what they see with their own eyes, and increasingly they're going to go with what they see with their own eyes. And if that's, uh, you know, albeit entirely, not entirely incorrect, you know, half the story mm. shots of, of deserted inner city centres, then, then that's going to strike a chord with them.
3: Mm. Um, Andrew, one of the things that Trump has been particularly eager to do is to uh, attack Angela Merkel on the question of immigration. Um, and uh, do you think that she's got a genuine political weak spot there, and how bad do you think it could get for her? Well, I think
2: it it certainly is a a weak spot, partly because um, her own coalition are actually uh, um, supporting a, a, a strong anti-immigrant position. Yes, that's Horst the,
3: Seehofer, isn't it? He, yes, he's he's exactly. a, her sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg character.
2: That that that's right, and, and and of course she needs the. It's a bit like yes, Theresa May and the and and, and the DUP in the UK that the uh, anglo needs uh, the votes of the CSU in in Bavaria in order to uh, keep her coalition together, um, and that's a very serious uh, that's a very serious problem for her, and and of course she's also got the increasing challenge from the uh, the AFD, the Populist Nationalist Party, that, that has made immigration now its central issue, its opposition to immigration. So she made a very, um, what was at the time, a very uh, courageous and very open offer to immigrants, but it has backfired on her and she has had to backtrack on it because there isn't the public she hasn't found the public support for that, uh, for that position. And the, her enemies, both in her own coalition and outside her coalition, um, have sensed that she has been weakened by the stance she's taken.
3: So Angela Merkel allowed large numbers of immigrants and refugees into the country and in doing so showed a kind of political compassion that maybe has not quite been in evidence The policies of the British Conservative Party of late. There's been a uh, a, an issue over some of the language that's been used by the Tories to describe uh, their posture towards the idea of immigration, creating a hostile environment, and so on. And we've had the Windrush scandal to go with that. But do you think that the Conservative Party has anything to learn from Angela Merkel's more compassionate approach? The British
2: Conservatives are always—they're—they're uh, they're finding it very uh, difficult to actually keep their coalition together. Um, partly because of Brexit, Brexit for the British Conservatives is an amazing own goal because they—it's fractured their coalition and many of the uh, many of the people that used to support the Conservatives instinctively have been alienated from the party because of the position that the party has now taken on Brexit. At the same time, um, there are many people who are now more inclined to vote Conservative because they voted Leave in the referendum, um, who are looking to the Conservatives to deliver a kind of hard Brexit, which uh, many of the leaders of the Leave campaign do not actually want, particularly on, uh, on immigration. So the Conservatives, uh, are now being doubted. Uh, if you look at the latest opinion polls, some uh, which uh, uh, Tom Clark quotes in in his article in 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 Prospect, in in, in the current issue of Prospect, um, the Conservatives are losing their reputation for competence. That was the thing which uh, always uh, was their their one of their strongest weapons in in attracting support. And that's partly because they can't decide what their position is on Brexit. It's so difficult to find a position which now unifies the Conservative Party and delivers them um, electoral success. And until the Brexit issue is out of the way, and and who knows when that will be, um, the Conservatives are going to uh, continue to struggle.
3: And Hepzibah Anderson, one of the reasons why all of this uh, Brexit stuff is so complicated in that is that driving it along is this real kind of essential urge to get back to a past where, you know, there was a, a a Britishness that was somehow more British than the Britishness we enjoy today, and and part of that instinct, one might suggest, comes from changes that we see going on around us in one of one of the places that is changing particularly markedly is the high street which is what you've been writing about in the most recent issue um tell us what you had to say on that
0: well the i mean the high street is is very visually very clearly not what it once was um yeah either in terms of, you know, the high street, as we talk about in economic terms, so, you know, the big chain stores and their balance sheets, but also, you know, what I suppose in the States we call the mum and pop stores, the little strip of shops that probably is nearest to your house if you live somewhere, somewhere urban, uh, the little market town if you live somewhere rural. And it's increasingly gappy. Um, And I think, uh, you know, for most people, um, the high street and going to the shops and all that, that entails is is their most direct link to the economy. And, uh, you know, no matter how the overall forecast is looking, uh, if they're strolling down there to the shops to buy a pint of milk or whatever it is, you know, one of the few things that they now do offline, uh, and they see, you know, two or three shuttered units on each block, I think there's something incredibly disquieting about that. Um, it's just a very visual... Uh, signal that something is not right mm. um and you know it's, it's just the, the depressingness of you know they get f- they get fly posted all sorts of litter congregates there uh, it's just a really demoralizing downbeat image and I think it's quite hard to uh, keep that at bay with the constant drip of dreary, somewhat chilling news of the kind that, um, that, 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 we've, that Andrew's written about. Mm.
3: So on the one hand, it makes um, the, the high streets kind of look not quite so nice. And on the other hand, it's a, it stands as this really disquieting visual metaphor for yes. other stuff. Yeah. But also you, you go into really rather brilliantly something deeper that's lost when these kind of shared bits of the towns and cities we live in kind of go and start to fall away it takes with it the possibility of meeting people yeah, yeah. and of being where others yep. are yep. and so on that yep. was a bit that and that struck me as a kind of much uh, more alarming kind of prospect yeah
0: it's it's the cha- it's the chance encounter it's the human element of shopping um, and you know i th- i think it sort of takes with us bits of our personal narratives as well you know t- in terms of the chain stores we all have you know, memories of, you know, whatever shop we went to for school uniform, whatever shop we went to, to, you know, as, as students, you know, kitting out our first student house for, you know, cut price crockery and stuff. Um, you know, you only have to think back to Woolies and its demise and, you know, God, that seems forever ago, but mm. it generated so many column inches of, of copy. It was really as if, a, a you know, a, a, we'd lost a celebrity, you know, like a soap star or something. Um, everybody had a connection to it. But I think, it, you know, it even goes deeper than that. We, we as someone of you know our generation uh we grew up they were you know it was where we said please and thank you. It taught us civility. It taught us about arithmetic. We played with cash toy cash registers and it, it sort of deeply ingrained with us that connection to each other because it was the one thing that, that we all did and we all ran out of loo at a certain point and had to go down to the, the corner store.
3: Mm. And so now the, the high street is gradually being replaced by the infinite chilly vacuum of the online space. Yes, um, such a
0: depressing experience. I mean, the other thing about shops is, you know, they make you feel wanted because they're all wooing you. Uh, so you know, even if it's the you know the, the sort of off-brand faux supermarket on the corner, it wants you to come in, mm. and it's, it's it's just a very uh, sort of wonderful multi sensory experience which you do not have when you're at home, mm. impulse clicking at midnight, and then you know some something that you don't really need actually turns up, and it's not even very attractively packaged, and it's been abandoned on your doorstep mm. well after its delivery start in you know grey tatty plastic and.
3: Do you force yourself to get out on the high street and actually go and shop in shops or do you 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 just get the iPhone out? Well,
0: I mean, this is it, isn't it? We all have this, I'm I'm talking about this deep emotional bond that we supposedly have, but it it doesn't transcend practicalities. And, you know, I have a toddler, Toys R Us I've used twice um, and both times, fairly awful experience, wouldn't use it again. So I can't really mourn it's passing. Mm,
3: Yeah, no, fair enough. But as you point out also in your piece, the high streets of our youth even they were replacements yeah. for former high streets yes. that had been and faded and so on. So maybe this is just a kind of natural cyclical maybe thing.
0: Maybe, and, and yet it's, well, I mean, that's the thing. I think it's not so, fact that so much the fact that these stores are closing, it's that nobody is pulling up the stress and starting a fresh business. And, and it, you know, whenever you read comment pieces suggesting what the high street might look like, it's always faintly sort of grim visions of, of you know, wellness experiences <laughs> sort of,
3: I don't even know what that is, <laughs> Andrew. You're on the line from Sheffield. Is this uh, a, a picture of uh, the fading high street that you recognise?
2: Yes, very much so. It's uh, it's it, it's happening. Uh, I think it's happening everywhere um, ac- uh, ac- across the UK, and and the um, Sheffield, of course, has a um, one of these huge out of town shopping centres at, at Meadowhall. Um, uh, which uh for a long time drained a lot of energy out of the uh, out of the traditional high street in Sheffield itself and gradually uh, they're trying to put back um, uh, uh, some some uh major shopping in in into sheffield city centre but it, but it's a very difficult time to be doing it with so many of these chains um in trouble uh, and so many so many shops. Uh, closing so so I think the uh, the analysis is absolutely right that, that the high street is is in trouble and it 's difficult to see uh what the model is going to be that, that can, uh, can can sustain it for the future for,
0: from sort of d- dipping a very tentative toe into the the annals of urban planning it seems that you know little little streets in various urban centers around the uh, around the country that have, have, have sort of asking a bit of a revival uh, they 've done so through being really emphasizing their, lo- their lo- localness. So it's, it's all become very specific and, and very local. And in a way, you know, I can see why that works, but in a way there's, there's something slightly gloomy about that, isn't there? It's a sort of, sort of you know, drawing down the shutters and f- narrowing the horizons and, and not really looking beyond your own... Postcode. what? so you think that the,
3: the local artisanal kind of cheesemaker is, is is in effect just an expression it's, of our natural national parochial instinct. It sort
0: of is a bit, isn't it? When you think of it. I mean it's great, I'll shop there, but it's it's not the most positive of metaphors if you think it through.
3: <laughs> oh dear. Well I was hoping for a ray of sunlight, but I am not sure that we got one. Andrew Gamble and Hepzibah Anson, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Moving on now, also writing in this month's issue of the magazine, the editor, Tom Clark. I spoke to him about his piece. So, Tom Clark, hello. Hello, Jay. You uh, have written a brilliant piece for this issue of the magazine, the title, Will Brexit Break the Conservatives? Uh, and you've been talking to loads of Tories and loads of other people. What, what did you unearth?
1: Well, what I did as well as talking to Tories is have a good look through the history books, because when you do that with anything concerned with the Conservative Party, it has a fairly sanguine effect, There's lots and lots of things from the empire to the end of empire, from the First World War to the resistance to going into the Second World War and then the wholehearted embrace of the Second World War, where there are arguments that should have broken the Conservative Party, but didn't. It shrugged them off. Uh, And so that was the first thing I did. And then I also looked at the history book on uh, one or two rows, most famously that of the Corn Laws back in the 19th century, that did break the Conservatives. And so I went round to the Tories I knew and said, you know, which type of argument do you think this is? And uh, at least the ones I talked to seemed to say, you know, if the Conservative Party compromises on Brexit, it will find a way through, uh, as it always does, by muddling through. If, on the other hand, a faction takes over that pushes it to an extreme and alienates crucial business support, then we could be looking... At something much more historic.
3: And it's funny, isn't it, to see that balance enacted before us right now. What do you think about the way the Tories position themselves at the moment when it comes to Brexit? Do you think that they're going for a different kind of really sort of calamitous internal ruction? Or are they going for another one of their make do and mend uh, kind of no ideal ideology free kind of fix ups?
1: Well, I think you can say that there are some things that are very conservative about the way that they've been handling Brexit. Um, What they've been doing uh, very spectacularly over the last couple of months is they've been, in the cliché of the day, kicking the can down the road. So, first of all, they say, uh, you know, to the Lords, go away and have another think about it. And then they say to Dominic Grieve, go on, we'll change this amendment just a little bit more, not the words of it, but the way it's read... And we'll all kind of agree that the real crunch doesn't come till later. All of those are very conservative things to do. And like people can get cross with Theresa May for not being completely clear about what she wants. But that's a very traditional Tory tack. The difference in process terms this time is that she had a rather unconservative moment of abandon and set the clock ticking against herself uh, by triggering article... 50. And so um, almost irrespective of whether or not the Conservative Party itself can get on, um, the outside world has got a clock ticking against the UK, which might mean that the kicking the can down the road in the traditional Tory way uh, is going to um, work less well than usual. And it could force them to a crunch. At the moment, rather than talk about where, which way they'll leap on that crunch, they're um, still being able to say, oh, well, will it be the Prime Minister who decides this, or a certificate from the Speaker that decides that. But I think we can all see now that there really are going to be some decisions in the autumn that it's not going to be possible to um, please everyone on.
3: And all of this is is giving the Conservative Party a real semblance of a of, of a of, of uh, a party that doesn't really know what it's doing. And we had that polling done for the current issue of the magazine, didn't we, where 51% of people who were asked said that they thought the Tories had forgotten what the party stands for. And that goes against everything that, as you say in the piece, the Tory party has been traditionally so good at, you know, making do, mending and carrying on. It seems that they've lost a really kind of essential component of what has made them so strong, doesn't it?
1: Um, I think that the Conservatives are extremely vulnerable. Of course, Labour's divided, uh, divided very much on Brexit and has plenty of problems of its own. And perhaps that's um, uh, covering up quite what deep difficulty the Conservatives are in. And I do think it's of a piece with that broader picture that Andrew Gamble talks about of trouble for the centre-right across Europe. And we really saw that in that polling when we said the, the big question that always counts in times of populism... Whose side are you on? Most of the people that we asked, and there were, you know, 2000 of them or something, said that the Tories were on the side of bankers and billionaires. Probably people wouldn't be too surprised by that. But where I think they'd be more surprised is that, like, uh, the public no longer believes that the Conservatives are on the side of, for example, small businesses, or pensioners with savings, all these other groups that have always been a really core part of the Conservative constituency. Farmers is another one that people think they've forgotten about. Um, And so we're in febrile times, there's big decisions to be made and they go into it with no goodwill whatsoever.
3: And one of the things that Andrew also points out in his piece is that that's what you have just described there, this kind of severing of the link between the good stuff that the country can produce and the kind of traditional middle class family. That suggests that the break between the electorate and the center ground, both center right and center left, is broken in a really kind of long term kind of fundamental way. And if that's the case, then the kind of the centrist tendency within the Tory party is is facing an even bigger problem that goes way beyond the the politics of Westminster, right into the structure of the economy and, and all of the problems that you find there as well.
1: Uh, probably when people of our age, Jay, were first reading magazines about politics and trying to understand, you know, uh, why it fell out as it did, there were a couple of things that you could absolutely take for granted. One was uh, that the so-called middle class was getting bigger, that we're becoming a more bourgeois society as more people were educated. Um, but another one was that, th- that home ownership was getting was spreading, that more people had a stake in the capitalist system. Um, and, uh, you know, the deal seemed to be that government did its bit to make sure through things like council house sales that more people could get that stake. And in return more people would prop up the system um, that Marxists and leftists were always very concerned that they should instead be tearing down. Now, we've had um, a number of years in which none of that's really been working. Wages have been stuck for quite a long time. Um, and uh, I don't know what's happened to the number of people who regard themselves as middle class, but if we if we define that in terms of things like job security and occupational pensions, that's probably been going the wrong way. And certainly and spectacularly, the proportion of the younger cohort that can afford to or even think about buying a house has been in freefall. It's um we look at thirty year olds, it's something like half as many in this generation as it was. The generation before. So these are really big social changes. And maybe we shouldn't be so surprised if they start to have some slightly disturbing, big political effects as well.
3: And for now, um, Theresa May has just survived by the skin of her teeth. Another vote in parliament and we had the results in just a few minutes ago now um she managed to squeak through it seemed that dominic grieve decided that he would not support his own amendment um instead opting for for a variation on it so what happens now i mean she's won this single victory but she's not out of the woods yet is she
1: so we go here from the uh, grand sweeping historical narrative down to the nitty gritty of the, 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 the latest deal, if that's what it proves to be. I mean, I think it is worth keeping the bigger picture in mind because a lot of these deals have been holding for a day or two and then they've been starting to come unstuck, which is what you'd maybe expect if there's bigger forces at work. Um, We know there's resurgent populism. We know there's a lot of anger um, and we know there's deep division on Europe and all of those things stay true whether or not this latest fudge which I believe turns on whether it's the Speaker rather than the House of Commons that can tell the government uh, what to do Um, then um, uh, I'm not sure that's going to hold particularly well um, either. I mean it seems to me that a lot now turns on whether the Speaker decides that a meaningful vote by the House of Commons is necessary. We know, because she's not hidden it, that Mrs May doesn't like the current Speaker. We also know that a lot of Conservative right-wingers don't like the current Speaker. And so um, the meaning of the Speaker pronouncing on what meaningful means, to get a bit Lewis Carroll for a minute, is going to depend on whether or not they change who the Speaker is. So um, all I can say on the latest... Detail and the latest frenzy is—it's um, very unclear. And um, uh, we've come a long way with things being unclear, but I think with that ticking Article Fifty clock, some things are going to have to become clearer quite soon. And when they do, it's not necessarily going to be comfortable for the Conservative Party.
3: Tom, thank you very much indeed.
1: So that's it for this week. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Jay Elwes, and thanks to all our guests this week. All of the articles mentioned this week can be found on our website at www.prospectmagazine.co.uk and you might also note that our subscription rates are extremely reasonable while you're there. Please do be sure to tune in again soon to the Prospect Podcast.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,